0: Thank you all for being here today for another lecture hosted by the Tocqueville Forum on Liberal Democracy and the Department of Political Science. Today's talk is made possible by funding by the Jack Miller Center in Philadelphia. Today we're very pleased to welcome Professor James Stoner. Professor Stoner is the Herman Moyce Jr. Professor and Director of the Eric Vogelin Institute in the Department of Political Science at Louisiana State University, where he has taught since 1988. His teaching and research interests are in political theory, English common law, and American constitutionalism. He's the author of Common Law Liberty, Rethinking American Constitutionalism in 2003, and Common Law and Liberal Theory, Koch, Hobbes, and the Origins of American Constitutionalism in 1992. He's also co-editor of several books on political thought of the Civil War, human flourishing, the social cost of pornography, and even business management, proving that political science occasionally actually know useful things. (laughs) He's a past member of the National Council on the Humanities, a senior fellow at the Witherspoon Institute. He has been a visiting fellow and also Garwood visiting professor at the James Madison program at Princeton University and he was the 2010 recipient of the Honors College Sternberg Professorship at LSU. His talk today is titled, Can Religious Liberty Be Legislated? Please join me in welcoming Professor Stoner.
1: Well, thank, thank you very much, and, uh, Professor Burns, and uh, thanks to the Jack Miller Center and others who've made this possible, and uh, for all of you for coming out today. Uh, I, I feel as if I'm on an English stage. Have you ever been to the theater in London? You know, some of the, some of the theaters have bars in the back. And so, uh, uh, so far I only see Cokes and things. Uh, although I'm, I'm kind of, in, well, we'll, we'll, let, well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see whether you need anything else for the talk. Well, uh, I, I've even prepared a, a PowerPoint for you. I'm, I'm a little ro- uh, uh, rusty at this, so let me try. So here's the first slide. Okay. Perhaps you, like me, were lucky enough to have had a teacher or a mother who was an old-style grammarian, uh, the type who insisted on subject-verb agreement in sentences, on the correct case when using pronouns, even who and whom, and on the difference between the auxiliary verbs can and may. Can I go outside and play, you might have asked. And if you were fit and the weather was good, the answer was likely, yes, you can. But the question you meant to ask was, may I go outside and play since you were asking for permission, and that depended on the rules, for example, whether you'd finished your chores or your studies, or whether the family or the teacher had other plans. In my talk this afternoon, when I asked, can government, I'm sorry, can religion be legislated? I don't mean may government legislate religion, Uh, at least at first. That question has an easy answer. The Constitution forbids religious tests for office and the First Amendment declares, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. To be sure, there's some debate over whether this prohibition applies to the states. But as we'll see, since the middle of the 20th century, the Supreme Court has said that it does though constitutional originalists and at least one member of the court have called this into question. But the question with which I wish to begin is not, may government legislate religion, but can it? I'll start with several sources who say it can, and then we'll turn, uh, who say that it can, and then we'll turn to uh, examine others who say it cannot. And then I'll try to examine, at least an outline, how American constitutionalism originally addressed the issue of government and religion, Uh, say a word about how that's changed over time and why it has. And then add a few concluding thoughts about how government and religion might live together today. So who says government can legislate religion? Well, let's start with Plato the Athenian philosopher and student of Socrates whose dialogues are generally seen as the foundation of the philosophical tradition. There isn't too much about religion in his republic uh, where ideas are exalted and poets who write of the gods are chastised. But Plato's laws begin with the word God and the gods are invoked throughout that dialogue. The city is concerned above all with the care of the souls of its citizens, with their virtue, and the would-be lawgivers seem to think that religion contributes to this task. Temples to the gods are established throughout the city and especially in the countryside. Priests and priestesses are appointed to care for these and to conduct sacrifices. Every day of the year is a festival day in Plato City, devoted, it appears, to one of the gods. Temple robbery is a crime. In fact, it's treated as the first of crimes, even before treason. And the gods are invoked for purification after crimes such as manslaughter that are committed involuntarily. Impiety itself is a crime, particularly if it entails the opinion that the gods ignore human beings or can be bribed to overlook men's faults. Opinions, by the way, that were common among the pagan Greek poets. At the beginning of the laws, an image is drawn of man as a puppet of the gods, a sort of marionette whose strings are the passions, but also the golden cord of intelligence. To follow which is especially to follow the gods, uh, the characters say. In contrast to the Republic, there's no extended discussion of life after death, or of the reward or punishment at the hands of the gods. But it is hinted at throughout the laws especially regarding sexual misbehavior, the gods are invoked by the lawgivers to promise their favor to those who are faithful to their spouses and their disfavor to those who misbehave. Religion, in a sense, pervades Plato's city and is supported by, and itself in turn supports, the laws. At the same time, though the legislators seem clearly to legislate religion, indeed at one point, they say they legislate the gods themselves, There is evidence that qualifies this proposition. Often enough, the Athenian stranger, the chief character, says that this or that question needs to be referred to Delphi, uh, or a name taken from a custom of the place, as if the legislators need to defer to religious authorities, uh, besides those that they themselves establish. Second, the legislators sometimes seem frankly utilitarian in referring to the gods, saying, for example, that sacrifices and festivals are meant to promote friendship among the citizens, not worship of the gods or obedience to them. Most significantly, atheists are treated respectfully, not with anger, but with persuasion. And the punishment for their sort of impiety, that is the impiety of believing that the gods don't exist, Uh, the punishment is five years in college, so to speak, Conversing with the city's rulers until persuaded to be moderate or just. Indeed, the speech given by the Athenian to persuade them says nothing about the Greek deities, uh, unless incidentally, but instead points to one God as a sort of oversoul of the universe, responsible for its motion and that of all other beings. Though the religion of the city is more or less traditional, the theology of its rulers is as philosophic as the uh, Doctrine of the ideas in the Republic. Although here the God moves and does not attract. Now, my second example of a legislator of religion is Moses as known in the book of Exodus in the Bible and in the books that follow. The Bible is emphatically not like a platonic dialogue whose guiding spirit is ironic but presents its account as authentic and true its inspiration coming from the one God who is creator of the universe, who gave at least the 10 commandments that initiate the law of Moses directly to Moses himself, with whom he is said to have spoken face to face. I make no claim to be a biblical scholar, only to say that Christians, at least, have divided the 613 commandments of Moses into three groups of precepts, the moral, the judicial, and the ceremonial. The first are held to apply to all mankind, or at least to all believers. The second and third specifically to the Israelites. The third and final group, the ceremonial, or perhaps, uh, are perhaps the most clearly of concern for our topic, for they certainly involve the legislation of religion. Though, of course, legislation by God through Moses, not by government, though he was the government leader. It might also be noted that God in the Hebrew Testament, when Uh, through his prophets he denounces his chosen people for not keeping his commandments does not uh, ordinarily distinguish between the moral, the judicial, and the ceremonial commandments. As though together they constitute a whole and as though obedience to all the commandments is a religious duty. Leon Cass in a very interesting book just published this year by the Yale University Press, the cover of which I have on the screen here called Founding God's Nation offers a clue of the, um, I'm sorry, offers a close reading of the book of Exodus from the perspective of a teacher of the humanities. As though Exodus could be understood on its own terms like a platonic dialogue, not through a rabbinical or ecclesiastical tradition. In speaking about his uh, project, Cass has said that what impressed him most and what he found least expected and thus most overlooked in the interpretive traditions, was the detailed description of the tabernacle God commands them to build and the provisions for its construction and use. The God of the Hebrews was an invisible God known only by his name and emphatically not to be worshiped through idols, but he commands this project to make visible to the people that he dwells among them and to solicit their contribution towards its construction so that it is truly a collective project, says Cass precisely described is the Ark of the Covenant, the tent in which it is to be kept, and the altars within that, the vestments of the priests and their offerings, the place where they will meet even. Cass's key insight is that the tabernacle fulfills the promise that the Lord will dwell among them, that they will be a people through his presence and their acknowledgement of their dependence upon him. My third My third witness, this one you recognize, right? My third witness uh, for the proposition that religion can be legislated is Thomas Aquinas. In his Summa Theologica, Aquinas treats religion as a virtue, that part of justice that concerns one's duties to God. In a treatise of 20 questions covering in the modern translation about 100 double-columned pages, he examines the internal and external acts of religion from devotion and prayer through oblation and tithes to vows and oaths, and then to acts of irreligion, such as idolatry and superstition, and then proceeds to consider piety, obedience, gratitude, and other virtues often linked to religion. Throughout this discussion, Aquinas does not draw a sharp distinction between what wrongs government can punish and what not, that he considers thus I'm sorry, that he considers this all under the virtue of justice suggests that the state might have a legitimate interest in all of it, even if prudence suggests different legislation in varying circumstances. Let me step back to put this discussion in the context of an earlier part of the Summa, better known as the Treatise of Law. Aquinas defines law as a precept of reason for the common good made by one with authority and promulgated. There are four kinds of law, eternal, natural, human, and divine, and they relate to one another in a complex way. Eternal law is that pattern of order in all things, in the mind of God. So it would include what today we call scientific laws, though Aquinas speaks from God's perspective of eternity, and we from our pride in discovery, however limited. Natural law is that part of eternal law that concerns human beings, insofar as made in the image of God, we have a share in his providence and thus govern our actions through our intelligence and our choices. The chief precept of natural law is to seek the good, that is the fulfillment of our nature, that is our happiness. And in reflecting on our nature and its inclinations, that means more particularly to preserve ourselves, to seek union with a member of the opposite sex and education of our offspring. And because we are rational as well as animal, to seek to know God and live in society. Still, these precepts are rather general. And so for more particular guidance, we need human law according to Aquinas. And that derives from natural law uh, as a more specific deduction or determination or choice. Human laws are legitimate and binding insofar as they follow from natural law. And if they go against it, they have no legal force. Finally, there are divine laws, which God gives us by revelation, because we understand natural law imperfectly, or because human law cannot reach our interior motives, and uh, cannot always uh, reach its end without mixing harm, uh, mixing in harm, and most especially, because we are ordained to a life beyond this one, in the presence of God, an end beyond natural happiness, and so known only by revelation, not by reason, and these divine laws are, in the first place, Moses' commandments, and then also the law of the gospel given by Christ. Natural law applies to all men. Human law to all citizens of a particular society. Divine law to all believers. Obviously, these categories overlap, but imperfectly. Though a state cannot legitimately force a non-believer or a Jew to convert, and be baptized according to Aquinas, it can insist by law that Christians fulfill the promise of their baptism, even to the point of punishing heretics who would spread false beliefs among the people. The government cannot legislate religion, true religion is a treasure guarded by the church which is empowered to legislate about matters not settled in the deposit of the faith, but government can legislate in support of religion holding Christians to their religious duties, and of course, giving legal sanction against crimes that violate natural law and moral duty. Neither church nor state can legislate truth. Religious truth and natural truth simply is, it cannot be created by human agency. But both are obliged to take the truth into account when they legislate in their own spheres. My fourth and final witness in legislating religion, are the Puritans of Massachusetts, the ones who founded the colony. John Winthrop, leader of the colonial expedition and often in the following decades its elected governor, said in his famous speech on board the Arabella that theirs was to be a city upon a hill to shine as an example of a Christian commonwealth whose members live in charity with one another. Winthrop was not a clergyman and ministers like John Cotton did not hold political office in Massachusetts but church and state supported one another you had to be a church member in good standing to vote or hold office in 17th century Massachusetts and the people of each town were taxed to support their ministers until the 19th century even after Massachusetts joined the federal union and in the early days of the colony church attendance was legally required included in an early version of their law called The Body of Liberties, published in 1641, is an article titled, quote, A Declaration of the Liberties the Lord Jesus Christ hath given to the churches, which specifies that members of the colony may form a church, elect their ministers and officers, admit and expel members, and so forth. They were congregationalists, we would say. Provided that they may, quote, do observation of the rules of Christ revealed in his word and that they, quote, be orthodox in judgment and then they establish an elaborate process to settle religious disputes by convoking a Christian convocation or conference of elders and ministers of the various towns, quote, for the preventing and removing of error and defense. And for the preserving of truth and peace in the several churches within themselves and by the maintenance and exercise of brotherly communion among all the churches in the country. End quote. The laws thus devise the process for settling disputes within the congregational system rather than directly establishing doctrine. Uh, though the spirit of the whole document is to incorporate into the colony's laws the rules of Christ as well as the Old Testament commandments. Punishing, for example, worshiping another god, or witchcraft, or blasphemy, or bestiality, or sodomy, or adultery, with death. So, Plato, Moore, Aquinas, and the founders of Massachusetts all hold that, at least in some respects, religion can be legislated, that is, given force, if not always definition, by the positive law of the state. uh, Albeit, as we'll see, with some qualifications. Who are the authorities on the other side? The proponents, let's say, of religious liberty? Well, first of all, the Catholic Church again, uh, which proclaimed its independence from the worldly power of the king and other uh, governments, and often asserted even A certain authority of the Pope in Rome, not himself subject to any sovereign, but sovereign in his own territory. uh, An authority over kings and other temporal rulers, at least the Christian ones. The first article of Magna Carta in 1215 confirms that, quote, the English church is to be free and to have all its rights fully and its liberties entirely. And while these aren't specified uh, in further detail, It would certainly deny the king the power to interfere in matters of doctrine or I presume interfere with the judgments of the ecclesiastical courts or with with church property and would commit the king to proceed with ecclesiastical appointments according to established law. That the story was extremely complicated is indicated by the history of Magna Carta itself. For it was probably written by a bishop, Stephen Langton, who is also known as the scholar who divided the, the, the Bible into chapter and verse. That's probably him there whispering in the ear of John. Uh, and then Magna Carta was abrogated by the Pope at the request of uh, King John. Then it was reinstated and confirmed by John's successors in their uh, parliaments, including the Lord spiritual, that is the principal bishops, still then in communion with Rome. Uh, The key point, as I see it, is that while the state can legislate in support of the Christian religion, it cannot suppress it or legislate against it, much less legislate some alternative religion. On these points, I think Thomas Aquinas would have been in full accord. The matter gets more complicated with the Reformation. With the authority, uh, when the authority of the church in Rome is questioned and the states in fact and states in fact are called upon by some of the dissenters for protection against papal attempts to restore catholicism if the interpretation of scripture is now the right of every believer or at least of every congregation as the protestants thought even the authority of a church to legislate for its congregants might seem to commence, collapse not to mention the capacity of the state the more radical sects particularly the Anabaptists, drew this conclusion right away, denying even that Christians can take part in worldly governance in any way. That's my depiction of the Amish, who come from that tradition. Others arrived at that position more slowly. Most famously for Americans, Roger Williams who was expelled from Massachusetts after his opinions were found to be unorthodox by a convocation of ministers uh, and who subsequently founded Rhode Island, where complete religious liberty to establish churches was granted to citizens and the state was to play no role in their affairs. Even in Massachusetts, the logic of congregational independence worked its way so that by the early 18th century, dissenters were allowed to form their own congregations. The key moment coming, at least according to my student Stephen Wolfe, is in 1718 when the leading congregational minister of the era, Cotton Mather, delivered the sermon at the ordination of a Baptist minister, Elisha Callender, in Boston. Soon religious liberty in uh, in the colony would include the rights to attend any church of one's choice and to direct one's tithe tax to whatever church one indicates the Congregational Church being merely the default recipient if no specification is made. At least on points of religion, where controversy would arise among denominations, state legislation of religion would henceforth be impossible or disallowed. Different is a third set of arguments made in favor of religious liberty, which I will call, in contrast to the Catholic and Protestant accounts just sketched, the liberal account expressed most memorably by Thomas Jefferson in the opening words to his Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, Almighty God hath created the mind free. And in a sentence in Jefferson's draft, removed by the legislature before enactment, I'll quote that, that the opinions of men are not the object of civil government nor under its jurisdiction. This liberal view holds that human beings' opinions cannot and therefore may not be molded by government, making any official imposition of orthodoxy a tyrannical exercise of power, even when imposed indirectly by using tax uh, dollars to pay a teacher of religion whose opinions the state vets and approves. When religious freedom is referred to by Jefferson and Madison as a natural right, this, I think, is what they mean. It's wrong to legislate religion because one cannot, in fact, legislate religion cannot persuade by state coercion what has not been grasped or received by the mind on its own. When people are forced to say what they don't believe or to do what they are not convinced is right, they're made to be hypocrites and religion itself is corrupted, wrote Jefferson. Fortunately, he added, there's no need for any of this. Quote, our civil rights have no dependence on our religious opinions any more than our opinions in physics and geometry, he said. These three traditions against legislating religion all had their spokesmen in America at the time of the revolution and the founding. That is the Catholic tradition, the Carols in Maryland, uh, the Protestant traditions, and the liberal traditions. But it's a mistake to think that only the last group, Jefferson and Madison, were definitive, much less that those who favored government action to promote religion had no voice. Madison got Jefferson's bill through the Virginia legislature in 1786. But on the other side, at that time, was Patrick Henry, a patriot of no small repute. In fact, there was a sort of compromise on the issue in practice in early America. And it looked something like this. First, the federal government, after the writing of the Constitution, the federal government could institute no religious tests for office and could make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Though Sunday was recognized even in the constitution indirectly as not counted among the ten days during which a president can decide whether or not to veto a bill. And of course the date on the constitution is uh, given in the year of our Lord. Second, the states were not bound by the first amendment. Madison's attempt to introduce such a provision in the Bill of Rights did not pass Congress. And so, the states remained free to deal with religion as they saw fit, from the longstanding disestablishment in Rhode Island, to the recent disestablishment in Virginia, to the general liberty, but still required belief for uh, citizenship in in Pennsylvania, to the attenuated establishment still holding on in Massachusetts. Though by the 1830s, disestablishment had won out everywhere. Third, government officials frequently could invoke, would invoke God in their speeches along the lines of George Washington's farewell address. Where he famously said quote, religion and morality are indispensable supports for political prosperity. And Congress and other governmental bodies hired chaplains to open their sessions with public prayer not to mention provided for chaplains in the military and supported missionaries to the Indian tribes. And they declared days of thanksgiving for the nation as a whole and uh, uh, recognized other public holidays. Following Washington, traditions of public prayer were non-denominational. Washington famously welcomed the Hebrew congregation of Newport, Rhode Island as full citizens and he scrupulously avoided even Trinitarian references when speaking of religion. But of course, there was great variation uh, in the country at the time. Washington may have accepted the view that religious liberty was a natural right, but he seems also to have thought that natural law required that men acknowledge their creator and uh, required that they govern their moral lives according with his religion. Fourth point, Religious practice was accommodated by law. Usually by statute, sometimes only after debate. So for example, Congress in the 1820s debated whether or not to permit delivery of mail on Sundays, deciding against it. A decision that held, I think, until the post office needed money from Amazon about 10 years ago. And so started delivering their stuff on Sundays, but not the mail. to give another example, the attempt to include in the Second Amendment an exception for those with conscientious scruples from bearing arms, that was defeated. But exemptions for military service were typically included from military service were typically included in statutes. And Sunday, Sundays were established in most states as days of rest, with various blue laws legislated and kept on the books. I don't know what the situation is still in Virginia now. I, I know in Louisiana. You can buy and sell, well, you can buy and sell liquor all the time. Well, in most parishes then the South Louisiana. And you can buy and sell almost anything on Sunday except an automobile. So in a way, the most American of things, and uh, you can't buy on Sunday, it's completely illegal to sell, even privately. Finally, and probably most importantly of all, all the original states, and all but one of those subsequently admitted, namely, Louisiana, recognized common law, that is, the unwritten law uh, carried over from England, the customary rules of justice, including nothing against natural law. They recognized common law as the basis of their jurisprudence. And common law especially, uh, common law was imbued with Christian principles, recognizing many sins as crimes, especially in the realm of morals, and supposing a Judeo-Christian anthropology that recognized man as a rational animal with free will. Indeed, it was characteristic of common law to focus the efforts of government on the punishment of wrong, not the prevention of wrongdoing, on the supposition that the latter project would prevent a lot of right doing. So, for example, allowing freedom of the press by forbidding state censorship, though permitting suits for libel or prosecution of obscenity if harm were perpetrated, that is, if liberty was abused. Although governments in uh, young America refrained from legislating on strictly religious practice, legislation of morals was permitted and practiced, uh, sometimes just reiterating or declaring the common law and expanding it in light of new knowledge, for example, in the statutes against abortion, and sometimes adding New prohibitions unknown to common law, such as the suppression of the production and sale of intoxicating beverages. The Catholics didn't play a role in that. Still, particularly at the federal level, the genius of America was a free society where experimenting, including experimentation, including, of course, exper- uh, economic enterprise, was welcomed and judged by its results. And even religious experiment was tolerated, albeit I think often with a wary eye. The great exception to the free society, of course, was chattel slavery. Though it might be noted uh, in passing that religious fervor, kindled during the second great awakening, played no little role in setting in motion the movement that would lead after the Civil War to its demise. How well did this American experiment work? Particularly the experiment with religious liberty. According to Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, whose namesake, I guess the namesake of this uh, uh, lecture series, who came to America in the 1830s from a France still wracked by a deep divide between the anti-clericism remaining from the French Revolution and a deeply resentful because deeply wrong church. The American experiment, according to Tocqueville, worked well, not only for the cause of democratic freedom, but for the sake of religion too. For Tocqueville found American religion more vibrant than Christianity in Europe, in all its varieties, Catholic as well as Protestant. Ironically, he thought, religion was strong in America precisely because it was not mandated by the state. That had been the failing of the old regime, which in linking church and state, had brought down the entangled church when the old state, with its exploitative privileges and inequality, had become discredited. Political fortunes rise and fall for political reasons, and a religion that ties itself too closely to a party in power will suffer along with it. Instead, religion having its human root in man's longing for eternity, churches were better off tapping this root in human nature for their endurance not relying on fleeting political triumphs. Insisting he was considering religion from a purely human point of view, Tocqueville saw it playing an essential role in democratic society. Fixing or securing the world of morals so that political and I suppose economic experiment became possible. And then containing these experiments by teaching men that not everything was to be allowed, even if the majority should want it. Seeing an America that was more democratic than in Washington's time, he shared Washington's confidence that religion could still contribute to our political prosperity. Indeed, Tocqueville called religion the first of our political institutions, uh, paradoxically, precisely because it was not politically established. What it takes to keep this going, he thought, was for democratically elected leaders to act as if they believed. The arrangement that Tocqueville describes, uh, a secular state with a religious society, or more precisely a legally secular federal state with a society whose leaders negotiate the boundary between state and religion, endured for a long time in America, I think. To take a striking example, on D-Day, June 6, 1944, Franklin Roosevelt read to the nation over radio a long prayer for the troops and their triumph that he had composed the previous weekend. Uh, And as recently as the beginning of the 21st century, social observers could see that Americans expressed belief in God and attended church in much greater numbers than their European counterparts. That gap has narrowed considerably in the last 20 years, Uh, but the secularization of our society had begun long before. In law, the critical change was adumbrated by the Supreme Court in the Everson case in 1947, and it was entrenched by the school prayer decisions of the early 1960s, striking at a long-established tradition and finally erecting Jefferson's wall of separation between church and state. The simultaneous movement towards religious exemptions from general law seems at first to push in the opposite, direction, but it too confirms the triumph of secular, secularist liberalism, I think. Religion is denied public expression and relegated to the private sphere, where it's allowed to persist provided that it foil no public purpose. In the time remaining, I'll pass over the details of the transformation in American law over the last 75 years and will instead ask the larger question about why such a great change took place. For a seismic shift of this sort must have a greater cause than a mistaken metaphor uh, in a judicial opinion, or even a generational shift in taste. One possibility that's received much attention uh, in recent years is that there was something wrong from the start with American principles and the Constitution in which they were embodied, which uh, are described as bound as based on liberalism. Names associated with this point of view in academia include Notre Dame's Patrick Deneen and Harvard's Adrian Vermeule uh, and in journalism Sorab Amare and writers at the American Conservative. Their claim is that the militantly secularist liberalism we see today, eager to force us to be free and to use state power to impose an ideal of personal autonomy that demands public affirmation of deviant proclivities and public suppression of expression of moral disapproval. That this militant liberalism was implicit in the in the liberalism of the American foundings, they say. So that the situation we see in society today is just a logical consequence of an error that was there from the beginning. While I do not think it's mistaken to see that liberal principles taken as a comprehensive guide to life issue in nihilism, I think it is a mistake to see only liberalism at the American founding and to see early liberalism as comprehensive in its ambitions rather than as a limited set of principles designed to allow strangers to live together in peace and to trade together with profit. Principles that have succeeded markedly in their proper spheres. As I suggested before, liberal principles at the founding were limited by a religious anthropology and by the common law legal environment in which they were embedded. Perhaps they expanded to fill a vacuum left when these atrophied, rather than that religion and common law collapse because liberalism necessarily grew of its own accord. That leads me to a second possible explanation for secularization, a failure of the faith and its custodians. I'm no expert on church history and while I suppose that such experts would point to the split between fundamentalism and the social gospel among Protestants early in the 20th century and the reception of Vatican II among Catholics uh, in the last third of uh, that century, I won't pretend to explain either development uh, nor to deny the recent rise of communities of orthodoxy in a variety of religious denominations from Judaism, through evangelicalism, through Catholicism. One institution, uh, one instantiation of which, if I'm not mistaken, is Christendom College itself. Welcome as these developments are, insofar as they remain isolated pockets in American cities or rural communities, they don't really challenge the dominant secularist culture, and it's impossible to insulate the teachers of these communities from that culture, uh, nor desirable to do so if they are ever to affect cultural change. Liberalism, at least when in a tolerant mood, can accept pockets of resistance provided they uh, remain isolated uh, and unlikely to challenge liberal dominance. It can allow people to live as they please provided they make no further claim on the whole. Besides, if the faith can only present itself to the world as a personal choice, It hasn't really escaped the orbit of liberalism at all. And it risks becoming fideism rather than faith. As for the clergy, however well formed they are, they're limited in their capacity to resist the culture, at least outside their specific work. As Tocqueville noted in commenting on how the clergy in his day had to make their peace with American avidity or love of material gain. The third explanation And the one I find most persuasive is that the transformation of society into secular society is the result of the rise of scientism. By this I don't mean the challenge that Galileo posed to biblical literalness or the way Darwin caused late 19th century intellectuals to lose their faith, but the tendency of modern imperiometric physics because of the enormous progress It's made through the use of mathematical abstractions to undermine the natural understanding of the world that we acquire through our senses. A recognition of the reality of things, of their various properties, of the cause of their motion and change, uh, and so forth. An understanding deepened by Aristotelian physics, but abandoned or at any rate forgotten by its modern counterparts. Modern physics uh, has made Discoveries about physical reality unknown to Aristotle and the ancients, of course. But the means by which it's done so have, particularly in the hands of humanists who don't understand physics, led to to, to confusion. Led us to grow confused about ourselves. To doubt that there is a reality in our natures uh, and an end of perfection implicit in who we are a reality that can no more be altered by our will or whim than we can make ourselves happy just by wishing ourselves to be. I rely for this argument on the work of physicist Anthony Rizzi, who with a team of physicists at his Institute for Advanced Physics, has developed the capacity to explain modern physical discoveries in a way that recovers more, a more philosophically complete explanation of nature and reassures us of the reality of our own human nature of its capacities and limitations, of its continuity with the rest of nature, and its transcendence in the capacity to know God. As Rizzi remarks in a recent uh, article, the American founders, even the genuine scientist among them, Benjamin Franklin, uh, and admirers of science such as Thomas Jefferson, retained their confidence in the reality of human nature, in its governance by natural law, and in the knowability of natural religion the basic truths about God's existence and benevolence. Having having inherited this brilliant but desiccated physics, by contrast, we achieved unprecedented control over nature, yet seem to have abandoned our capacity to control ourselves. Well, where does this leave us? If the remarks just preceding are true, our overwhelming need is to recover a sound understanding of ourselves and of the world a genuine natural science that can in turn help us sort through the human sciences and discern the true from the false that can provide an anthropology to allow us to understand human practices and human actions and guide ourselves as individuals and as a nation towards what is truly just and good. Since this is a philosophical or scientific or educational task, How does it bear upon the question with which I began? Namely, can religion be legislated? I conclude with two observations. First, I remind you that the truth, of course, can't be legislated, whether scientific or religious. In the right order of things, law ought to follow truth. That is, the whole idea of natural law in a nutshell, that law follows truth. And the reversal of that order promises nothing short of totalitarianism uh, as Uh, pretended uh, or as portended by the modern progressives who, in the name of social justice, aim to police what can be thought and said in our society today, even in academic circles. But second, law can and must protect the search for truth and the capacity to live our lives in the light of truth. That, I think, is what American law did in its tradition of religious liberty particularly the free exercise of religious worship and religious works while establishing not any particular religion, but a society in which religious witness was allowed to flourish. And the natural truths about religion were authoritative, that man was not the highest being in the universe, not fully autonomous, but allotted a noble existence in which he was free to know the world and himself. The pressure against religion in our law today is an attempt, I think, uh, often from the bench, to legislate irreligion. And while that is no more it can no more determine the falsity of religion than legislating religion can uh, prove its truth, it would establish a society of a certain type. Not a neutral one, as if that were possible, but an irreligious one. Thoroughly secular in its concerns and necessarily oppressive in its operations. Given the anthropology of autonomy and subjection, that this irreligious view supposes. This is not what the constitution requires and not even what it permits. Instead, we in sh- should insist the constitution protect religious uh, religion, not as a private practice, but as an assertion of truth. Even public truth that might Guide us as we legislate about our lives together. And protect our consciences in doing good as we are able by whatever light we have. Thank you.